Hi everyone, and welcome to the Stay Hungry podcast. I've got a special guest for you, and I'll let him introduce himself just shortly. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. So, do me a quick favour, tell us a little bit about you. Well, my career started at nine years old running a candy and soda cartel uh, in my my school. I hired a bunch of other nine-year-old lieutenants that I bought, you know, candy and sodas off of for pennies on the dollar. And we hosted auctions and we made, you know, $1,000 in a a few weeks before we were brought to justice. No. Uh, But yeah, it was was pretty impressive. We, uh, we, there was a ban that hit the school for sweets, basically. And we took advantage of that and, and started our own market. Every school has that guy that brings a box of sweets to school. This is correct. And that guy hopefully follows that and a few decades later can uh, can build something of his own. So, you know, it was the, the first accidental business I ever ran. But None of them um, do $1,000. That's crazy. It was a... It was a landslide. It was great. Um, we also got caught on CCTV, and then we're, we're brought to justice pretty quickly. So, um, But I actually kept a ledger of everything that I made, and uh, my mother still has that on her bookshelf. She's very proud of the Why? ledger. So, um, yeah. so today, I mean, for the past, let's say, 10 years or so, I've been doing um, takeovers and transformations, usually companies stuck at that 1.5 to 2 million range. Yeah. Um, I'll go in take over, change some, uh, some tactical or strategic bits and bobs, and then flip it. And uh, currently, I'm also the CLO, uh, Chief Learning Officer of a new uh, edutech and uh, education startup as well. So I've got some experience in a lot of different areas. Wow. So uh, I guess bridge, bridge the gap a little bit for me. How do you go from selling sweets in the playground to CLO? an edutech company? I think a lot of the skills are the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's mostly the, the the kid that's willing to sell the sweets and, and pull together everything, just being responsive to what happened in, you know, uh, if you would call it a market, I mm-hmm. guess you could, right? Being responsive to uh, a regulation that hit the school and solving a need. Um, is the same as the person that sees the issues with um, education and the opportunities that spark up around it. This isn't my first time in Silicon Valley as uh, an education company as well. So I've been here before. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of entrepreneurship, I think, is about being responsive, not being creative. I think a lot of us think we have to invent solutions or we have to be you know, these visionaries that see something no one else sees. And the reality is the problems that the best companies in the world solve, they're around us every day. They didn't magically see this thing that nobody ever saw before. They're very, very obvious issues. And someone steps in and becomes the solution to the problem. Um, They don't manufacture a problem. Amazon did not manufacture an issue. Mm -hmm. They responded to one. Uh, Apple did not manufacture an issue; it responded to one. So, you've touched on something there um, about well, manufacturing issues. 
What do you mean by that? Because it's a, it's a big issue in the marketing game at the moment. Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. I think a lot of time when, when, especially when we're at the beginning of our entrepreneurial careers, um, whether you're a service provider, whether you're trying to create something new as a, as a hard product, or if you're developing a, an app or anything like that, it's very, very easy for us to just decide what the market needs mm-hmm. and then go put a tremendous amount of time and money and energy into creating, planning, marketing, developing, hiring, you know, basically building a business. And then we find out once we get out to the market that there's really no appetite for it or the appetite for the thing is considerably less than we thought it would be. Yeah. And a lot of that is because we are trying to, again, we're manufacturing a need because we're good at something and you might be right. I mean, you could be the world's best. Let's say you make uh, incredibly realistic balloon animals. That does not necessarily mean that there's a market for that. So just because you're, incredible at something does not mean it needs to be a business or that it should be a business. A lot of us build our businesses around our capabilities, not what customer need actually looks like. Yeah, absolutely. And something you've also mentioned, going into businesses that are struggling to sort of get past the the $1.5 million mark, what are the problems you tend to encounter? It's actually the same. Over and over again. It, it's so consistent at this point that I have a flow chart where I could literally put a sticker on it that says you are here. Um, so there, the, there's a, another side question of that, um, if you'd permit me, which is, you know, why 1.5, right? Or why, why yeah. is that kind of a target? And the, the reason is pretty much any business can get to, let's say, 1.2, 1.5, that kind of range with just sweat equity. Yeah. So you could work really, really hard and hit that number. And then once you get there, you go, oh, my God, I'm, I have a seven-figure business. I'm incredible. It's Everything's working. Next year, my target is two. And then you might sit in that place at your $1.2 million ceiling for 20 years. Mm. The reason being, as I say, almost anyone can hit 1.2, 1.5 at sweat equity. But to graduate and to evolve into a real company, there need to be changes. You can no longer leverage time as an infinite resource. You need to start having real strategic intent. And that's where, as you say, you know, what like what are the, the things that are most common? That's where the scaling strategy happens. So for the most part, when I come into any organization, the first thing I look at is what is our strategic intent? Do we have a real North Star here? That might sound very vague, but the reality is if if we don't know exactly what we are trying to build towards, then it is impossible for us to navigate there, right? It's, it's very easy, even when you're making bad decisions, if you know you're making them in the correct direction, you will get there eventually. If you have no idea what direction you're going in and you're just following whims and hunches and hints that you think the market's giving you enjoy wandering the desert for the next 40 years you need to have that strategic intent first and foremost the next thing that i see with folks is a real lack of understanding of what their market actually wants 
most of the time when we go to market as service providers or as entrepreneurs, it is without real data behind us that lets us know we're making an intelligent decision. That means market research needs to be a part of everything that we touch. And for the most part, I can line up 100 entrepreneurs at $1.5 million a year, and I can ask them to show me their research, and I think I'm going to see 100 pretty embarrassed faces. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess that's because it's so, so alien to them. Like, like you say, the, the sweat equity of, of the grind, the, kind of the hustle is, um, you know, maybe they've got a few staff to get to that size, maybe you know they've probably got a nice office by that point or or a nice premises nice restaurant whatever it might be but you you've you'll never encounter those problems until you get there yeah i mean it's 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 easy to build yourself into a corner as an entrepreneur right because it's you don't realize that you have the problem until you've created the problem mm-hmm but now it's very difficult to extricate yourself from this thing that you've built. It's very difficult for an entrepreneur that gets to the, the 1.5 million to realize that suddenly in order to move on, they need to go and run this business totally differently than they've ever done before. That's a leap of faith now, right? If you've built to 1.5 million by being reactionary the whole time, to suddenly switch from the person that's found success being reactionary into being the person that builds a real vision, starts to look at, you know, how their business models align to the vision, you know, all of these different things that a actual tactical leader would do. It's a complete disconnect from what you feel's made you successful and you will be resistant, which is why you might need other people to step in. This was um this was our year last year. So like, <laughs> really? Yeah, I know. I know the feeling of kind of hitting that point. You know, uh, for us, it was systems and processes had to change. They had to be more robust. Um, yep. Operations manager had to come in to take my role in the business. Um, right. You had to fire yourself from something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so now I don't feel like I'm doing any of the work. And it's, that's uh, sometimes that's really hard for your ego to to cope with um it's an identity shift yeah hugely and then you kind of you have all the friction that comes with change and Mm -hmm. i think for six months for us it felt like is this going to grow the business or is it going to destroy it right well I'll, i'll tell you this you know you asked what's the big thing you see with all these companies and yeah, there's a process, but I'll I'll say something here that's going to sound maybe a bit odd, but I'll tell you if your biggest focus and you're like you're under a two million dollar a year company mm-hmm. and your biggest focus is monetization, you're making a massive mistake. Yeah, right. Because everything is serving the the almighty dollar, and that'll work for a while, but at a certain point you need leverage mechanisms around you, right? You need to start making things work for you. And it's a hell of a lot easier to monetize a business and to continue growing it like you're seeing too and to step into a more mature phase as a company if you are first starting with a vision 
then you're ensuring that the business models that you've chosen actually empower you to reach that vision, which most of us do not use the appropriate business model or we're making inappropriate assumptions about our models and what they're capable of. Yeah. And then once we have those two things aligned, now we can start looking at our offer structures to ensure that our offer structures, again, empower us to bring in the right team, to step into more of a leadership role. Like our offer structures are the things that deliver us to that next level. It's not necessarily, you know, oh, it's this genius product I have that's going to change the, the world or, oh, it's the way I do something. It's our distribution model. All of this stuff needs to be figured before we ever get to monetization, right? Monetization is just a a natural result of us doing the rest of the work properly. And when I go into most companies, they're people that have just served the monetization arm for years and years and years, and they're stuck. Like I took over a law firm last year um, or the year before last, actually, and they'd been stuck at, you know, 1.2 million for almost 20 years. Why? And the first year they grew 54%. The first quarter of this year, they've grown another 50%. They're on track to do another 50%. So it, it's nothing to do with them not being wonderful entrepreneurs or wonderful service providers or, you know, it has nothing to do with how much they care. It has nothing to do with the, the impact they can create. It has everything to do with creating real alignment around those front ends, right? The What's the vision? How does the model align to it? How do we use offer structures that support us getting there? And then we can monetize the hell out of everything. If you do that, you graduate from an entrepreneurial business to a corporation. And once you're in the corporate game, scientific method is all you need to be successful. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So I guess... For the listeners, what would be really interesting to discuss is is offer structure. So, and what and what you mean by that? Because I think um, something we say to our clients is is money is a byproduct byproduct of success. It isn't an indication of success, and there's a, a subtle difference. And when when we talk to people about their marketing and say you've got no offer structure, they they look at me cross-eyed. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'll give you a, a really obvious extreme example of this. Mm-hmm. Let's say the two of us both close a million dollar deal tomorrow and your million dollar year deal is, well, let's say your million dollar deal is uh, 500,000 up front and 50,000 a month for however long. And mine is $1 a year for the next million years. Who's actually wealthier? Who's actually got a, an, an easier business to run here? Obviously yeah. you, right? I mean, cash flow becomes a big indicator of success. So offer structure and the way that we build out our offers has a massive impact on whether or not we're actually successful. I see tons of people that go around bragging about deal size, but none of them tell you that they're taking, you know, oh yeah, it's a, it's a million and a half dollar deal but I'm taking 50K up front and 10,000 a month for in the next 20 years, essentially. And that sort of thing happens all the time. So the, the question is, can we, as a business, 
use the cash flow we're generating, not just to service the project, but to service all of our different growth goals to ensure that we're essentially um, creating space in every offer for us to not just be the company we are today, but if this thing is supposed to be paying us in perpetuity, and I'm looking at you, monthly recurring revenue guys, if you're supposed to be paying for this business in perpetuity, what's the company look like in three years? Can you support that thing three years from now with who you will be at that point? Mm -hmm. I know that sounds very abstract, so I'll, I'll give it to you very simply. There's something that I do with every company that I've ever been a part of that works for everything I've ever put it into. So this is a pick up your, your pencil moment, and it's really simple. We have seen over the past 25 years, this idea of subscription services become very, very, very popular, right? And whenever you sign up for subscription services, every single one of us has had the experience where we see the three tiles, the, the free or the basic, the mid-level pro, and then the, the enterprise level or the super awesome level, right? The reason that happens is because they're trying to sell you the middle tier. We know this, right? Just basic buyer psychology. It's the Goldilocks idea. You don't want the thing that's basic because, well, you're, you deserve more than that, don't you? And you don't want to spend a tremendous amount because, well, you don't know the tool yet. So it makes sense for you to bias into the center. That's SaaS, right? The entire SaaS model tends to be about send, uh, selling the middle. What I have a problem with and where we have the business model alignment issue is there's heaps of you that are using an old SaaS business model in your service businesses with a three-tier offer that inherently forces you to sell the middle which is typically not your highest uh, like margin activity, right? So you have a business model issue. So there's a way that I use offer structures to sort of pull us out of that nightmare here. And it's by modeling very high-end luxury brands. You know, I, I did like a three-year search in the wilderness, right? In the wilderness of my mind, um, trying to figure out what allows a company like Porsche mm -hmm. to put out a 911 that's a million dollars, a 911 that's $300,000, a 911 that's $180,000. Like what allows them to do that functionally and be successful? Because I sat there thinking about them and the nice thing about any public company, their financials are, are public, right? They get released. And I looked through that and I was saying there's literally no way in perfect blue hell that Porsche is making money on a million-dollar 911, right? The cost of development, design, even just, like, people don't understand how expensive it is just to do the studies that they do around aerodynamics, sure. right? I mean, the, there's all of these things that go into it, and then logistics and selling the damn thing, right? So why is it they're making this vehicle if they're running a deficit? So the idea was... And the idea remains that in years where Porsche has those super high, um, like super premium versions of the 911, sales on the $180,000 more base level of the 911 go up like 20%. So the, the million-dollar 911 essentially operates as a, a loss leader. It, it operates yeah. as, as what I call a halo offer. 
Now, here's the thing about that. If you have a three-tier offer, you're selling people towards the middle. That's like having a $180,000 911 as your highest tier and then knowing that people are just going to go buy a ton of Caymans, right? And it, it just doesn't promote the business model at all. But having that fourth tier of the hyper premium for the 1% not accessible offer makes your highest tier significantly more attractive. Instead of selling Caymans all day, we're now selling $180,000 911s. But we're doing that by creating this little bit of, of structure in our offer that creates this hyper premium halo and now raises the high watermark for everything else we do. Yeah. Airlines are amazing at this. So they they uh, do it with first class. So first class is, you know, it's let's say it's $10,000 for a first class seat, $2,000 for a business class seat, and $500 for economy. By having first class, they sell way more business class. Absolutely. And, and I would take it another step further and say that, you know, if airlines wanted to absolutely just fill up first class more, they should create another tier of first class, essentially, or another tier above it, where the service is just over the top ridiculous, and you use that to sell more of their first class seats, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's tough because airlines, as a model, they have a limited number of seats to sell, so it makes it a bit more difficult. But let's talk about it if you're a service business, right? Okay, you can, you can take the first class, business class, and uh, economy model. But you're still running a three-tier offer, and you're going to end up selling a heaps of business class, and that's not really your company's goal, right? We want to sell our highest margin, highest uh, cash flow item, and that's typically going to be your top tier if you're a service company, right? If you introduce a what I would call a halo tier, that million-dollar 911 that sits above your, your business class idea, or your first class idea, I mean. Maybe it's something, and I'll give you an example. You know, maybe you're a, I don't know, is a, maybe you're an advertising company, you do Facebook ads. And maybe in your highest tier, you do all of the ad strategy, you do all of the design, you're building the landing pages, you're running the accounts, you're managing everything, you meet with them every week, you're the show. Mm-hmm. And maybe one tier below, you're doing all the bits and bobs, but you're not meeting with them as much. And maybe at the very, very bottom, you're just giving them the strategy. Now, if you want to sell more of your highest tier, right, we have to always remember the highest thing we offer is our anchor price. No matter what, even if we really want to sell it, it is accidentally an anchor. So now if your highest ticket thing was 5K a month, you've set the ceiling at five. A percentage of your people will always take the maxed out option, usually five to 10%. But the default is going to be to the middle. You've, you've just artificially limited what you can make to your highest tier. And you're, you know they are going to default to the middle or the absolute bottom in 90% of your business cases. If you introduce that halo tier above everything else, and if you were 5K, I would say, hell, make make Halo 15,000 a month, right? Make it something significantly different Mm -hmm. as a much higher anchor. Introduce all of those different bits and bobs you were doing, but maybe go partner with uh, a marketing automation person that's going to do the funnels now. Maybe go partner with somebody that is 
like a genius at um, content repurposing or social media that's going to help you bulk out your offer. We've done this with financial advisors. We're talking like virtual family office, folks that manage billions of dollars. And they had their tiers. And we ended up adding a, a halo tier that was not just what they were doing already, but a, a round table where they would bring together the best tax mitigation person, the best attorneys that they could find, the best insurance people they could find, the best estate planners. And they would have that team of really high-end talented folks meet once a month to discuss your case. So if you're the billionaire that was already paying X percent and X dollars a month of your massive amount of wealth to this team, and you find out that there's another level where you can get access to all of these other complimentary people that are going to help you reach your goal more expeditiously, you're willing to spend a ton more for that thing. So mm. now you're one or your five or your 10% high tier buyer, your upside is infinitely higher. What you're doing from a cash flow perspective is infinitely more profitable your effort is not much higher because you're leveraging other people or existing services or existing products. But now what you're doing with that offer is you're making your old high tier really attractive. Just by having this crazy $15,000 offer, you've now just increased your ability to sell that 5,000 a month, two to three X on average. So if you want to break through 1.2 to 1.5 million, don't work harder. Figure out what your North Star is here. Make sure the model you choose aligns to it. And then you employ an offer structure like what I just showed you to help empower the business to be able to afford to get to that point, right? To evolve essentially. And now we can go hit monetization hard. Now we can go advertise. Now we can pound the payment. Now we can go build partnerships or do channel marketing strategies. But all that stuff has to start from the very, very beginning, because we need to, like with any building, right? It's the foundation that keeps the building stable, right? If you look at the Parthenon, it's been there for 2,700 years. Why? Well, there's two reasons. There's heaps of pillars at the Parthenon, right? Yeah. So when one pillar breaks down and your business will happen, right? You've seen this with your own, I'm sure. There are things that make you money today that are pillars of the business and those pillars will erode at some point. Everything that makes you money in your business is a ticking time bomb. I don't mean to say that to scare anybody, but the reality is something crazy could happen. I don't know, like a global pandemic and something can just come out of nowhere and it can completely erode those pillars. So who survives? How do you build your Parthenon? More pillars. Well, you either need heaps of pillars but if you just put a bunch of pillars in the sand and put a roof on it, it doesn't matter how many pillars you have. Your foundation is poor. If your sure. foundation is poor, you have another issue. So what I would tell you is most of us try to survive by putting heaps of pillars in place. And we think that's security. But that doesn't work until there's a rock solid foundation. Then our job is to add more pillars every year. Okay. Yeah. So that idea I, show, I, I just mentioned with a low tier, a mid tier, a high tier, and a halo tier, I want everybody to think of that as a product line. Every business should have product lines, not products, which means there should be four ways to disseminate every single service you do 
And your job as the entrepreneur, once you have all this set, when you go to monetization is to add one product line per year. That's all you have to do. You end up with four new pillars every year on a strong foundation. Welcome to a scalable business. Nice. Nice. And then you just got to staff it and worry about all that. <laughs> yeah. But if you're, if you're intelligent about the way you introduce new product lines, you can do it without introducing tremendous amounts of new staff. Like the difference between most of the companies that I've run at, you know, 1.2 to 1.5 million and two, three, four million is not tremendous amount of staff. It's usually um, more intelligent management. So yeah. it, it might be hiring one or two key people. And they are the ones that help everyone become a hell of a lot more efficient. I don't know about you. I'm an awful manager of like processes and operations. Like I'm not that guy. So my team is undercapitalized when I'm running it myself because I'm just not the person to run the ship like that. I'm not the keep the trains on time person. Okay. I'm, I'm the sit alone in a room and think about what things could be kind of person. Sure. I need the trains on time person to get the most out of my team where they are today. And adding a couple more people could give me infinite leverage. But if it was up to me, I could bring in 50 people and get way less out of them than if I bring in the right person and bring in five or 10 people. That's really interesting. So obviously being a marketing company, we work with scaling businesses and very often businesses that have hit their ceiling um, and in, in the UK, with five hundred thousand pounds, tends to be a bit of a ceiling. Um, mm-hmm. We we actually find that they can get rid of some of their staff, yeah. and and it it blows their minds because they've got staff who are were brilliant to get them to where they are now, but they they're never going to be the thinkers that get them to the next stage. Sure. I mean, and that's it. It's, it's, it's not even their fault. Most of the time, it's because as leaders, when we were getting started, we didn't really have a clear enough vision to know who mm. the right folks were going to be. So we just got a bunch of people that were good at their jobs. But when we hit our ceiling and we need to go to the next level, you're inherently asking people to do something they've never done before. Sure. And if they're not bought in, they could be world class at what they do. They could still be awful. I don't know if I'm, can I swear on this program? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Myself? Okay. It, they can be amazing at what they do and they can still be dickheads, right? Like, so when we want to go to the next level, we want to ask more of them, not more as in work harder, but more as in be bought into what this next level yeah. thing is. Become a leader of your own thing. They can still be the wrong people. I, I just had this, I took over um, a tr- like a trauma therapy center um, and I just had this conversation the other day it's great that the team got us here, but now that you actually know what your vision is, you've aligned the business model, you've got your offer structures, it becomes very apparent who's on the, who's on the boat, right? Who, who wants to be here or not? And it's fine that people can be very talented and still be off the boat. Yeah. Right. And, and our job is just to make sure the people that are here are the ones that want to be here. And even more important, it's the ones that do not want to be here are not poisoning the rest of the group, right? They're not, they're not being toxic about their displeasure, right? So, I mean, with this entrepreneur, she's incredible. She's built a wonderful team. She's got two people 
that are nightmares. Mm. Everyone else, brilliant. They're all good at what they do, but there's two people that just are not on the boat. And that's fine. We just need to be okay with that and we need to move forward now. And it's part of graduating into being a, a real company and not just like a hobby. Yeah, right? yeah. That's so funny. That's so funny. So uh, we have an annual on the bus meeting, um, which is a bit like on the boat. And you can't be uh, following the bus. You can't be hanging off the bus. You can't be driving the bus. You have to be on the bus or right. or you're out. And that sounds so harsh, but experience has taught us that there's people who are on the bus now that won't be on the bus in the future. Um, there's people that weren't on the bus that have become on the bus, which that's trickier to deal with. Uh, and that whole culture thing was... That was our block. That was what was stopping the growth of the business was that the culture wasn't ingrained as it should be and the vision and the values weren't as clear as they needed to be. And almost instantly when we made that clear, a few people left. A few people felt much more secure and the business started to grow again. Absolutely. You have to think of it this way, right? If you give people something to align to, at least they have a choice now. Yeah. A lot of us as leaders, like we want to be, we want to make sure everyone's happy. So we don't set hard line ideas, values, goals, et cetera, because then it doesn't create this binary, this yes or no. Are you on or are you off? So we might get a few years into the business with a bunch of people think, hey, we built a great place to work because people aren't tearing each other's heads off and people smile at me when they walk in the door or they send funny gifts on Slack or whatever it is. But the reality is the minute you set out that line in the sand, you're going to find the idea of creating the binary just instantly showed you who's on side and who's not. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. It's, it, 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 there's no more room for interpretation, right? It's the it's the VAR of of uh, f- of like business essentially. Like it's just it is or it isn't, right? How you interpret it becomes slightly less important. Although, you know, I think there's been maybe that's a bad example because there's heaps of uh, of poor VAR decisions. But still, like it's it's a thing, right? It's it gives us something to have people align to. You either agree with it or you don't. And getting the wrong people off the boat just makes the boat go faster. Yeah. I mean, a big one for us was we set the vision and then we wrote a definition of the vision so that there was clarity that people couldn't, couldn't interpret it the way they wanted to. Then mm-hmm. we, set, we set the values and we did the same for the values, that there's a definition of each value. And behind each definition of each value, there's a list of this is what it is and this is what it isn't. Um, just for total clarity and it it's been brilliant uh i'm not going to lie and say it hasn't been painful seeing some people go because it has um but the momentum shift in the business even with people who we felt were very very skilled at what they do it just hasn't stopped the business it hasn't slowed the business down at all no no and it creates more of an energy because when people that select being here see people that didn't leave they know that the people around them are, those are their people. Yeah, right? yeah. Like there's, there's so many times where you take over a company 
and half of the people are like there's this weird mental warfare going on there's like the people that don't really want to be here that don't really pull the 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 same direction as everyone else and there's always this energy around it it might not be toxic yet but it's this thing that you can feel this tension or this this weirdness and everyone might get on but you know there might be a key decision you make and there's some grumbling and there's some people that are willing to to do the hard yards and no one doing the hard yards ever looks at the grumblers and thinks yes we're we're all we're you're you're doing your bit even if they're good at what they do yeah right we um we call those people the fun sponge in our business so uh because they don't necessarily make it toxic as in they're not negative but they do suck the fun out of it for everybody else at the same time yep. Yep, the, it's like energetic vampirism. It's yeah. like the worst. It's it's, and I think honestly, I think it's worse than just being toxic. At least if you're toxic, we can we can feel like we have cause to remove you faster. Sure. But if you're just slowly leeching off the lifeblood of the system, and you're only here because you're you're paid well and you're good at what you do, but everything else is just horrible, and you don't really want to be here because it's here. You want to be here because it pays you, and you're good at it then go get paid and be good at what you do somewhere else. Because like what you do and what you get paid, those are not contingent on this company, right? You can get paid the same and you can do what you do at a different business and brilliant, right? Hopefully you find a fit that's good for you. But being in any of these companies, especially in a smaller stage, right? Under that 2 million mark, it's the energy we create around what we do that gets people excited about it. Right. Clients get excited when people like when leadership is clear enough that the folks they deal with every single day that clients deal with are stoked to be there. Absolutely. Right. That's that's the biggest thing. So it's all about relationship. You've been really generous with your knowledge and your time. I've got two more questions. Please. Number one, what's the best mistake you've ever made? That's a great question. So I, years ago, when I knew absolutely nothing, I latched on to a partner that was more experienced than I was um, in, in business, better relationships, just all types of stuff. Sure. And there were a couple key mistakes from there. One, I was, it was too early for me to find a partnership, especially someone that was more um, mature as an entrepreneur than I was, because I ended up leaving heaps of the decision making on someone else instead of developing the skill myself. That was one thing. So it stalled my growth for a a bit, right? And then the other thing that um, was a key mistake that ended up sparking some amazing stuff was that relationship turned very, very toxic in that I was creating incredible amounts of, of revenue but I was seeing almost nothing because I didn't know how to actually read the books and I couldn't tell what was being done with the money. And I, I can leave it at that. But like I, I found out over the years working with this person that I was not exactly in an honest uh, partnership at the sure. time. And it, it had held me back for years. So for a long time, I thought I was just a shit entrepreneur and that I didn't know what I was doing. And the reality was that I was not set up for success. So going through all that, 
what you know the the best mistake I ever made was actually being in that partnership, mm-hmm. seeing all of those mistakes I made, and feeling like one day I woke up and could see all this entire game that was being played that I knew nothing about, and it was like a light switch flipped, and I could suddenly evaluate opportunities, deals, partnerships. I, you know, I developed all of this ability from that place of pain. And had I not done it, even though it was a horrible time of my life, um, I would not have the, the vision that I needed, right? It, it, it sort of, you know, pressure makes diamonds ideology. Yeah. The pain and the struggle of being in that situation as an entrepreneur actually propelled me to do so many things that I would have never done before, like join Genius Network, like be, you know, go out and reach out to my my mentors like Joe Polish and really build those relationships. Those are things that happened out of desperation, not choice. And they became some of the best things that ever happened to me. That's awesome. Thank you for being so honest with that. That's that's really helpful for the listeners. And finally, an easier question. Uh, what's your favorite film and why? Oh, that's an interesting question. You, you say it's an easier question. That's probably a harder one. Um, there's a film. It's a French film. And let's see, when did it come? Yes, it's called The Intouchables. It came out in 2011. Okay. Not Untouchables, The Intouchables. Mm-hmm. And it's it's been sort of spiritually remade, I suppose, um, with uh, Brian Cranston in the past couple of years. Yeah. Um, but it, I remember watching that, you know, when I, I probably just graduated from, you know, high school or something mm-hmm. like that. And being so affected by the like just the the positivity of this thing and also being in a place in my life where I did not have much, if anything. Um, And so to to see sort of this idea of this relationship that could pull you out of that place and give you these different opportunities and to to see the value Mm. of you know, like if you if you've seen the film, it's it's without spoiling it because I do hope people go and, and watch it. But um, to see that someone that you might not traditionally perceive as having value to this wealthy individual can bring so much to this this person's life and kind of enrich it, kind of allowed me seeing myself as maybe not being experienced enough or having enough value yet. I mean, I dropped out of university at eighteen to start a company. So I was sitting here watching this feeling like I couldn't bring value yet or like I didn't have the experience or like I, I didn't have the relationships or I, I couldn't capitalize on any of that. And you're, you're watching this interaction between this, this amazingly connected, successful person who brings up this other person and how they enrich each other's lives. And there's something, there's something to that that's a really fantastic lesson in life and in business, right? That sounds like what you do for businesses now. It, it is a connection that I'm making as I talk about it, for sure. Um, it's just a good film. Uh, so it's, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it's fantastic and it holds up too. Just, you know, I, if you haven't seen it, it does bits. Absolutely go back and, and, and check it nice. out. Yeah. Joe, 
you've been an awesome guest. Thanks so much for coming on the Stay Hungry podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, man.